Well, good morning from Austin. I got to say, for my part anyway, I'm enjoying the sun coming down here from Vancouver for my fifth year at South by Southwest, and I'm really excited to be here at the Social Media Clubhouse. I got to say, last year, the Social Media Clubhouse was one of the stories I was telling all year round. What I'm here to talk to you about today, because sometimes I get a little bit confused about coming down to, to South by Southwest, this interactive park, because it's all about the technology. And I didn't really, I'm not one of those guys who grew up with computers and well, I wasn't fascinated by technology. I was always the guy with the notebook, the guy with the paints, the guy out telling stories. And so recently I, I, I noticed that, um, that I, I really received my first Twitter at message the day I was born. It looks a little different. The delivery is a little, a little different. It's, and it's a little bit over 140 characters. So it's maybe a little bit more like a Jaiku post. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it was the day, I the, the day I was born, August 16th, 1970, and a telegram came. And the thing that made this really interesting to me is that recently, the last, uh, the last telegram ever uh, was sent. And, telegram, and tel the telegraph, which was really the internet of the Victorian age, lasted about 150 years. And so I started thinking about these tools, and I, you know, I worked building these tools and spreading the love of these tools, and I'm on the Twitters, and I'm on the whatever you got. I started thinking, well, is Twitter going to be there in 150 years? How will we be using the internet in 150 years? Will there be an internet? And I started thinking about it a little bit more in that really what these tools allow us to do, whether it's the telegraph or uh, any of these new internet tools that we have, is to tell stories and to amplify the stories. And what I mean by that is that ever since the earliest days of history, people have always told stories. That's no secret, right? But there's been this kind of uh, tension between telling stories and gaining an audience. And it, to me, it, uh, I started thinking about the time I walked across the Grand Canyon. And there's two sides, obviously, of the Grand Canyon. And your first day going down the Grand Canyon, it's downhill. So that's pretty easy, right? But it's hot and it's a little tough. It's battering on the knees. And to me, that seems like the technology thing. You can get excited with the technology. It can keep you sloping downhill. But it can get a little bit painful, a little overwhelming. On day three, it's all uphill. And this, to me, feels a little bit more like the, the arts life. It's uphill. It's a little tough. And once you're getting closer and closer to the top, what you find is that there's all these tourists that uh, rent mules to go down to the thing. And these mules, once one mule takes a crap, apparently that's a sign for all of them to take a crap. So it gets really messy up there and a little stinky. I said, yeah, that's pretty much like the arts, arts and culture side of uh, things. But then I, what I realized from that is right down on the bottom, this is where you want to be. Down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon is the technology and the art mixing together in this beautiful environment with plants and water and all this beauty out there. So I started thinking about all these different ways throughout history that technology and art have kind of coexisted. Because when I come down here to South By, no one's really leading a panel about talking about uh, how to paint, how to write poetry. Sometimes they call it content creation. Or sometimes uh, they use my least favorite word, which is word processing. Words aren't for processing. Words are for changing lives. Words are for leading revolutions. Words are for inspiring people throughout history. And I started thinking about some of my heroes throughout history, like Samuel Pepys. So this guy was living in Victorian England, and he was a, uh, a highfalutin naval officer. I don't know if you can see this very well, but he uh, wrote in code that he devised his own code, and he kept this journal obsessively for his entire life. And he hid these journals. Away. So basically, knowing that one day someone in the future would find these, so he could give a written account of what life was really like in Victorian England. What we know about that is dudes in white wigs and everything is all proper and all, everything's all very moral and uptight. 
And in his journals reveals a very, very different uh, environment, a very different atmosphere. And without him sending these little messages to the future, really, uh, you know, his audience wasn't his contemporary people. He was doing that for us to learn about his times. So I started thinking about, is the stuff that we're making and put on the internet, 100 years from now, 150 years from now, are people going to be paying attention to that? I don't know. We can't even manage to archive websites from 10 years ago. One day, someone just pulls the plug on GeoCities. Someone pulls the plug on Radio Userland. Someone pulls the plug on all these different technologies. And it's easy to laugh, say, oh, GeoCities is just a bunch of under construction animated GIFs. What's the big deal? But this was a seminal moment in internet development. And this was one of the first ways that regular folks who weren't prepared to write code in open angly bracket, HTML, and in Notepad were able to express themselves and get something out there uh, to, share with the, to share with the world. And all of a sudden, we can't even manage to archive that, that stuff. In some ways, we know more about what happened hundreds of years ago than we know what happened in the early 90s because that was before everyone was on the web. So I started thinking about a couple other instances where art and technology kind of really helped each other out. So I'm going to give you two, uh, two more examples here. Um, the first one is, um, you know, everyone knows Vincent van Gogh's paintings, right? And, you know, you hear the stories, oh, you know, he cut off his ear, and he was that crazy guy, and he's painting himself for a lot of money. But when you just scratch, scratch below the surface a little bit and realize that really what he brought to painting was putting a canvas on a backpack and walking out into a field and making one painting in one day. It was unheard of. It was absurd to even think about. It. Because before, painters had to have a patron, which meant they had to have kind of like a corporate overlord that controlled what they painted and what it sold for. Then they had to be a bit of a, a chemist because they had to mix all their own paints and all their own pigments, and which was, besides being difficult to do, it's actually super toxic too. So you get all these painters would end up in these crazy respiratory illnesses. And then they would work in these studios, so you're always trying to adjust light and you're always trying to capture something that may have existed outside, but you're trying to capture it in your studio. And it was all about getting someone to sit still and paint them. And paintings would go on for months sometimes. You'd let the oil dry, you'd come back to it months later, where Van Gogh would take a, uh, a canvas out, go hiking out there in the wood, put on a straw hat, and it was like, who's the crazy dude out there painting in the field? But the thing that made this possible for him to do, Van Gogh was one of the very first purchasers of tube oil paints that looked pretty much exactly like this. And there was a guy in, uh, in Paris who had this crazy idea that what he was going to do is he was going to pre-mix paints going to put them in these little tubes that were originally uh, pig bladders, fortunately they've moved on, uh, and start making these tubes of paints. And the colors, the recipes for the colors, the hues, and the process of making them hasn't really changed since Van Gogh was doing this in the late uh, 1800s. And because of this, and because of this portability of this paint, he was able to produce 40 canvases a month in some cases while he was holed up in the insane asylum. That's a pretty good uh, uh, productivity record by any standard, but it was facilitated by this. Okay, the next example, the humble pencil. This is probably one of the few pencils at South by Southwest. Um, you know, there's plenty of iPads, but not too many pencils. And this was fascinating to me because I'm a big fan of the writer Henry David Thoreau, who's well known for writing Walden when he lived in a little cabin, and uh, wrote this book that went on to influence Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the Egyptian Revolution more recently, and did all this phenomenal stuff. But the way, the reason he was able to go out and live in the woods. And sure, he lived cheaply, and you know, you've read the book, and you, uh, and you know that he uh, calculated all his expenses down to the last uh, morsel. Um, but he was able to do this because his family had a pencil company. And then all the best graphite in the world came over from Europe. Now, their war started, and um, the supply of German graphite, which was the best in the world, the Germans make the best have the best graphite, was cut off. 
And there's another pencil company, the Faber-Castell family. They pretty much own the pencil market. And Thoreau's family in Concord, Massachusetts were like, we need to get some graphite, but the graphite around here is crap. And Henry, uh, young Henry and David Thoreau had gone to, they, the family supported him to go to Harvard. So they were like, all right, Harvard boy, come on, college boy, help us figure this out. So he went out in the woods, found a kind of mud, that, uh, this kind of clay mud that mixed with graphite, and he mixed those things together, experimented with them, and created the, uh, the, modern, um, the modern pencil as we know it. Um, same recipe, same technology, and he was like, well, all right, check. I'm done, I'm going to live in the woods. And can you imagine getting by without this? I mean, nothing else would have, I mean, the human communication would have been stalled for, for generations without this simple invention. And you say, oh, well, someone else would have invented. Oh, probably, but how come someone hasn't changed this? If, someone, if it's so easy to invent something, how come this thing is the same as it's been for 100 some odd years? So there's a couple things that kind of fascinated me. And I started to bring this all around to all these digital tools that we have. And I started thinking about that, all these content creators, um, which is uh, a generic name for people who want to produce art and arts and crafts type things, and uh, what they want and what the impetus to, be, to produce this stuff is, is having people read and respond and interact with it. It's a lonely life being an artist when no one's paying attention to your stuff. And that's where this internet really comes in and bridges these two worlds. Again, my, my concept of the Grand Canyon, bringing these things together. And down here on this, the, the fertile plains of the internet, all of a sudden, some can be an artist and be living wherever, however, and can be dedicating themselves to their art. And at the end of the day, after they come in from the field, making their Van Gogh-like oil painting or coming in from the cabin after writing out uh, pages of prose, they can amplify their story, just like the uh, Pacific Islanders did with pounding on these log drums. Um, you know, it's one thing, even if you have a big, huge log drum, when you're just one person pounding on it, after a while, your arms get tired. The noise doesn't really travel quite as much as you want. So the trick is, is, getting more, is getting more drummers. And that's what the internet allows you to do. All of a sudden, you can create a, a painting, you can create a poem, and you send a Twitter out about it, and you let your people know that, hey, I've made this new piece. I think you might really like it. And within five minutes, within an hour, within a day, it's all over the world, literally, and people are responding and reacting to it. And that, for any kind of artist or any kind of content creator, is, is, a, is a glorious thing because all of a sudden, it's not that you need your work validated, but you need an audience to breathe life into your work. If, it, you're not, if there's not an audience, it's one of those things that ends up in a shoebox in your closet, in that old, that old timey suitcase that's up in your attic. You say, oh, it's that stuff I really used to when I, was, when I was a teenager, when I was in high school, I always wanted to be a photographer. And ah, but I gave it up. I still have those old pictures. Go out and pull that stuff up. Scan it, share it, explore it, remix it. Cut scissors and glue out and chop it up into something entirely new. And then get yourself some drummers to go out and beat the, beat the drums to spread the word about it. And you'll find incredible sense of, it's not an accomplishment, but it's an incredible power that comes from sharing the stuff that you've generally poured your heart and soul into. And I know we all go to our day jobs and I go in there and I give 110% every time I step over the boards of my day job. I go full on and I get tremendous satisfaction from it. But I know that the things that bring out the best of me is when I go home, when I go into the woods and I produce some piece of art that you have to tear out and you have to dig deep and do something that's a little challenging to yourself. And that's the stuff that you really want to share. And that's the stuff that we want to be around for 100, 150 years. <clears throat> now with this, building this community and building this audience of people, um, something really magical happens. And that's as your work you get this audience breathing life into your work. Your work starts to take on a life of its own. And it's no longer just yours. And we have these things like Creative Commons and Remix Culture that allow people to take your work and chip and chop it up 
and making it something entirely different. And I like to think of this as cross-pollination. Uh, cross and what I mean by this is um, I lived way up in the hills in Japan in the early 90s, long before I'd ever seen the internet. I worked as a mushroom farmer. It wasn't really a typical job that most folks do when they go to Japan. And I was the only, uh, I was the only foreigner around for, 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 for miles and miles. And I had hair down to here and a beard like this. And uh, I had been hired for the, to work at this farm. And I think they were expecting someone bigger and stronger to come be a farmhand. Um, I showed up. And I worked there for an incredibly challenging uh, six, eight months with two little old Japanese ladies that worked harder than anyone I've ever seen. And me, and I was, my job was to get the stuff off the tall shelf, do the heavy lifting. Not really tuned for that, but I learned a couple of really important things. The first one was humility um, and knowing that sometimes you don't know it all. And I had to, I didn't know, I didn't know, I, know, I knew Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto, and that's it when I arrived. And twice a day, the, the old ladies would say, QK, QK. That was the first Japanese word I, 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 I learned. And it turns out uh, it means sit down so we can serve you this tiny cup of scalding hot tea um, that by the time it's cool enough to drink, the break will be over. Later I realized it just means break. But, uh, um, and then the other thing I learned was how shiitake mushrooms grow. And you get these logs, you get these oak logs, and you chop them down, you let these logs kind of get a little, little funky for a few months, right? And then you inoculate them with the culture. So this culture is your tweets, this is your poetry, this is your photographs, this is your music, this is your remix, this is your film that you've made. This is, this is what we're doing right now. And these little um, spores get inoculated into the logs. And then these logs, you stack up these logs, and nature just kind of takes over. So you start your story off here, and before you know it, the culture spread from this log to this log to this log to this log. And these lo uh, little teepee structures of logs would wind through, I mean, hundreds of yards through the woods. You could follow these things along. And what happens is the ones get old, after they, done, they stop producing mushrooms and they kind of die off. But way down the line here, that same culture, that same, those same spores, those same stories and photographs and anecdotes are sp spread down to these logs. And long after the person who planted those first spores, long dead and gone, these spores, this culture is still going to be producing, and pr uh, producing fruit for hundreds of years. So when I think about these digital tools that we have now, because, I mean, you, you don't have to go far here at South by Southwest to see mind-blowing technology and incredible ways to share stuff. And that's great. But what this gives us a tremendous opportunity to do is produce better content, to really dive, dive deep into our own selves and figure out what it is that I'm really capable of producing. And what do I want people to know about me 100 years ago? Was it that I had a lot of visitors to my blog? Well, not really, man. You want to show that you, you're, you've been able to contextualize your unique experience in your life because you're doing something else that no one else in the world is doing. Where you're living, what you're doing, what you're thinking. It doesn't have to be highfalutin. It just has to be real. And it has to be from the heart. The same way Samuel Pepys was keeping his journals. And, and I'll tell you, if you want to read some scandalous, racy stuff, Samuel Pepys' uh, diaries, saucy. But it tells us the story of how life really was. What are people going to know about us in 2011 in Austin, Texas? That's up for you to tell them. So tell it well and make it last. Thanks. <laughs>